Audio's going, recording. Great. Well, good morning, Trinity Church. It's good to uh, see you. Uh, thanks so much uh, to Mal for leading us. It was great to see Brian uh, a few moments ago and uh, hear from LMPC. We love those guys. It's so great to be able to partner with them. Well, as we come to Mark's Gospel now, chapter two and chapter three, why don't I just pray for us and then we'll dig into God's word together. Father, thank you for the fact that you speak to us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that uh, as we open your word by your spirit, you meet with us. And we pray now, Lord, that you would focus our minds, still our hearts and help us to know Jesus better as a result of our time together today. So speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the ideas we've been developing over the past few weeks is that we don't know Jesus as well as we might think. So many of us, including those of us who have been Christians for a while and perhaps uh, grown up attending church, think that we know Jesus. We have a picture of what Jesus is like. But when we get to grips with the gospel accounts of his life, when we open the pages of our Bible, we're constantly surprised by the man that we meet there. And if that's true for those of us who maybe grew up in church and have spent a lot of time reading this book, then I think it stands to reason that that's even more true for those for whom church is a foreign experience and who have never read the Bible before. I wonder how many of us, when we think of Jesus, would associate him with conflict. I think a lot of us would actually think of Jesus in precisely the opposite way. He's known as a teacher of peace. He preached a message that we should love one another, turn the other cheek, pray for our enemies. We don't often hear Jesus spoken of or cited in 21st century Britain in public life, at least. But when we do, on occasions like Easter and Christmas, it is Jesus the peacemaker. Jesus, the bridge builder, Jesus, the meek and gentle lover of those who disagreed with him, who is presented to us. What makes passages like the one we see today in Mark surprising for us is that we see Jesus' ministry characterized by a growing conflict that really characterizes his entire public ministry, while crowds, devoted disciples, and an ever-intensifying opposition shape the atmosphere around him and will eventually lead to his trial and execution. You know, Jesus has a lot to teach us today about how we handle conflict, which is good because conflict is something that all of us have to deal with in one way or another. I grew up uh, in South Wales. We lived really close to many of my extended family members. Uh, we were one of those classic working class families. My parents and I lived a stone's throw from the Port Talbot Steelworks. Uh, my grandparents lived uh, in a terraced house on, just on the other side of our local park. My, my aunt lived two doors down from them. My great aunt and uncle and uh, th their daughter lived just a few streets up from them. We were a very tight, very close-knit family. And so my earliest memories are of family. I saw them a lot, all the time, really. Uh, and they are 
happy memories. Growing up uh, seemed to be uh, idyllic to me. We weren't rich, we didn't have very much, but we, we enjoyed having one another and the, and the quality of relationships there. But as I got older, I gradually became aware of conflict in my family that I just hadn't appreciated when I was a little kid. It had been hidden away from me. But that conflict ran deep. It was bitter. And still to this day, 30 years later, it divides members of our family. Perhaps that's an experience you can relate to. But you know, I think sometimes as Christians, we think that our lives are supposed to be different. We follow Jesus now, and so conflict is a thing of the past. It belongs to our old life. Our marriages, our families, our church community, our friendships should be characterized by a grace that forgives offenses, that brings peace into our relationships. And you know, I wanna to say to us this morning, that is true. As we follow Jesus, he calls us to put to death old conflicts. And it's hard work. It's often painful. It takes courage to pursue a marriage, to pursue a friendship that actively seeks peace. And God gives us to one another to help, to support us in this great quest, to live lives of unity and harmony. More than that, he doesn't just give us one another, he gives us himself, doesn't he? He comes to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. He makes us live with the very life of God, to do and desire that which does not come naturally to us. So we are different. We are becoming people of peace. Jesus calls us to end the old conflicts of pride, envy, and self justification. But he also invites us, he calls us to join him in a new conflict. He calls us to follow him, to walk the road he walked, and by necessary consequence experience the conflict he himself experienced. But I think it's really important as we, as we begin uh, our time together today that we need to recognize that this is not the same old conflict we've grown up with. Now, this conflict centers on the question around Jesus' identity, a conflict that flows from disagreement over who Jesus is. That is the issue that is at hand here in Mark's Gospel, that Jesus' identity creates conflict. Look with me if you have a Bible open at home. We have these three stories there in Mark chapter 2 and into chapter 3 of conflict between Jesus and a group known as the Pharisees. Now you may not know much about these guys. At most the average person might know them as the baddies in the New Testament. Uh, but I think it's more accurate to say that the Pharisees were a group of people from all walks of life who were devoted to keeping the Old Testament law, which was given to Israel through Moses. They believed that if they could reform the national life of Israel by causing people to observe the religious rules found in the Old Testament, then God would bless the nation of Israel again. 
You see, at this time, Israel was a vassal state of the Roman Empire. They had endured centuries of conflict as various empires, the Greeks and the Egyptians, as well as, as, well as the Romans, had fought over their territory. And they were now little more than an insignificant backwater. And the Pharisees were so convinced that religious reform would lead to God reversing their fortunes that they developed a second set of rules in order to prevent anyone from even getting close to breaking the Mosaic law. So it's fair to say that these guys were pretty intense and they had a lot of influence in first century Israeli society. And they had a big problem with Jesus because of the way that he treated the Old Testament law. Now, I don't want us to get bogged down in this this morning. There are a million things that could be said here about this issue, and there are a million things that have been said on this issue. And if you want to read more about the relationship between the Old and the New Testament and the law and the gospel and all that kind of thing, come chat to me, drop me an email. I'd be really happy to direct you uh, in some of the, of the reading there because it's a very interesting question. Uh, and it's a, it's a rabbit hole that we're not going to go down today, though, I think it's fair to say. Because for our purpose, what we need to see is at root, these disagreements that we find here in Mark 2 and 3 over fasting and the Sabbath particularly, they are not about that primarily. They're about who Jesus is and whether he has authority over the Pharisees' lives and our lives too. So look with me there in verses 18 to 20. Uh, John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting, uh, which means that they're going without food. And for the Pharisees, at least, we, knew, we know that in Luke's gospel, uh, in chapter 18, they did this twice a week. It wasn't mandated in the Old Testament. The only time the people of, of Israel had to fast, according to the Old Testament law of Moses, was on the Day of Atonement once a year. But when people question, why, to question Jesus as to why his disciples don't fast, his response isn't to go into the ins and outs of what the law says and whether they're interpreting it correctly or not. That's not the issue here, really. His response to them is all about him and his identity. Basically, he says, he answers that it would be inappropriate for his disciples to fast because he is with them. It would be, the picture Jesus gives us is, it would be like a group of people going to someone's wedding and insulting their friend by refusing uh, to eat and to celebrate with them. Now, that only makes sense if you accept that Jesus is what they are fasting for. Fasting was an expression of our search for God, our longing that God would draw near to us. But Jesus says, eat, feast, celebrate, because I am here. That's also the point that he's making in this rather unusual illustration we see here in verses 21 and 22 about old and new cloth and old and new wineskins. You can't put new cloth on old garments or they'll tear. You can't put new wine in old wineskins or they'll burst. What he's saying here is actually pretty simple. 
Essentially, something new has happened, which means that we must change the old way of doing things. We must change the way that we live. Jesus has come. God is with us now. That is what is new in this context. And that radically changes how we are to live. For the Pharisees, it necessarily changes their approach to fasting, or it should do. That's what Jesus is saying here. Then again, in verses 23 to 28, keep, let's keep tracking here through, through the passage. The Pharisees challenge him because his disciples are picking grain on the, and eating it on the Sabbath. Now, the reason that is controversial is that in Exodus 31, God has told Israel not to desecrate the Sabbath, to treat it with disrespect and dishonor by working on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees had decided, as they debated this over centuries, that picking grain constituted harvesting, which is work. So they questioned Jesus as to why his disciples are doing such a thing. Now, notice again, though, that Jesus answers them not by debating whether or not their interpretation is right. He quotes this rather obscure story from 1 Samuel about a time when King David went into the tabernacle and ate the bread that was reserved for the priests because he was hungry and in need. And he shared it also with those uh, his friends who, who were following him. And I think initially the Pharisees would have been like, well, why is Jesus bringing this particular story up? Because it seems to have nothing to do with the issue at hand. There's no indication in 1 Samuel 21 that David did this on the Sabbath. Uh, and it's got nothing to do with working or harvesting. But here is why Jesus is talking about this. David was God's anointed king. And though what he did could have seemed to have been wrong, because he was the king, his interpretation of the law is the correct one, which is exactly Jesus' point here. Listen, guys, you might think that you know what you are talking about, but I am the king. I am the true David in this situation. So what I say is what is true. The Pharisees had made the Sabbath something that was hard to keep, something that brought rules and regulations on the people of Israel. But Jesus says that is wrong. The Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath. And my lordship, my kinship, my kingship, my authority extends over the Sabbath too. You see, again, it is a claim about his identity. That is the primary issue here. And then finally, we have the healing of a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath, which occurs in there in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. But this time, the Pharisees, they aren't asking a question of Jesus. They don't say anything. They're just laying a trap. You see, they considered performing acts of healing to be on the Sabbath to be work, unless it was a life or death situation, which in this case, uh, in, the, in the case of the man with the withered hand, it clearly isn't. 
Jesus could leave it till tomorrow if he wanted to heal the guy. He doesn't have to do it on the Sabbath. But the point here, again, is they are missing the point. They're trying to catch out the man with, who is healing people rather than asking themselves where it is that he gets his power from. There's nobody else walking around healing those uh, who have withered hands, casting out demons, raising uh, the sick from their, their mats. What do these things say about Jesus' identity? That is the question they should be asking rather than whether this man is breaking the Mosaic law or not. And Jesus' question in verse 4, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? The answer is obvious, isn't it? But they won't answer, verse 5, because their hearts were stubborn. In other words, they had a settled conviction that they would not affirm something that is obviously good because they're not prepared to acknowledge who Jesus is and seed with that the authority that they had to set their own rules and their own agenda. Here's, here's the takeaway for us today. If we follow Jesus, we implicitly accept his identity. He comes to us as God in the flesh. He is our lawgiver. He is our saviour. We submit to his authority in our lives and we believe that the words he speaks are true. And guys, listen, that will inevitably bring us into conflict with those who reject his identity and who don't believe. Now, I don't mean, of course, that we can't be friends with people who don't believe in Jesus. We can't work with them or find common ground with them in many things. But if Jesus is our king, then the foundational relationship in our life is different to theirs. The foundational authority in our life is different to theirs. And we, that will inevitably result in conflict over how we ought to live our lives. We'll have different views on the meaning and purpose and value of our lives. We will have different views on how we spend our money. We'll have different views on the objective or subjective nature of morality. We'll have different views on the nature of human sexuality and gender. We'll have different views on sex and relationships. And, and, and that's nowhere near an exhaustive list. But of course, fortunately, none of those things that I just mentioned are in any way controversial or cause strong emotional reactions. Of course they do. Conflict flows from debate regarding Jesus' identity. But here's the question then. How do we deal with that? That's what I want us to focus on uh, in our final few minutes together. How do we deal with this conflict? The conflict that rages around Jesus' identity. You know, in my experience, when it comes to conflict, we all broadly fall into two camps. We're either volcanoes or we're hedgehogs. Uh, when conflict comes along, volcanoes erupt. If there's a fight to be had, you are ready. You're going to meet fire with fire and lava and pain. 
That's the volcano approach. But hedgehogs, you see conflict on the horizon, you ball up, spikes out, and you just hope that if you stay quiet enough, everyone will eventually leave you alone. That's broadly how we all deal with conflict. We're in one of those two camps. But the question today is, how does Jesus deal with conflict? How do we follow Jesus into this conflict regarding his identity? Well, let me give us five things today that Jesus models for us here as we think this through together. And the first is this. We are to answer the deeper questions. Okay. Second half of the sermon, take two. Let me give us five things that Jesus models for us here as we think these things through together. And the first is that we must answer the deeper question. People, people's lives are full of questions. Questions of origin. Where do we come from? Questions of purpose. What, what is our life about? Questions of morality. What, what is right? What is wrong? Questions of identity. Who are we? We're asking those kinds of questions all the time. And then as it pertains to the Bible particularly, we have questions around how does science and the Bible fit together? Can we trust the authority and authenticity of the Bible? And also, just the, the big questions of life, like how can God, if he is loving, allow suffering in the world? These are huge questions that people ask all the time. And it's right for us to engage in these things, to think these things through deeply. But we need to recognize the deeper question beneath these things, because ultimately, the answer is found in the identity of Jesus. If Jesus is who he says he is, then all of these things start to make sense. So as we engage with people's questions, we need to answer the deeper question and as quickly as we are able, talk about Jesus. He's the one where it all starts to make sense. That's the first thing. Answer the deeper question, the question about Jesus' identity that lies beneath the questions that we often engage with. The second thing is this, though. Answer loaded questions honestly. Answer loaded questions honestly. We live in a time of spin. Everyone has an angle. And we all also know that all of those cultural touchpoint issues, so we can spot loaded questions a mile off. And in verses 18 to 24, these are loaded questions about fasting and the Sabbath. Jesus knows immediately that he's walking in a cultural minefield. But notice here, he doesn't play the politician. He just speaks the truth plainly and honestly. You know, sometimes that's what we need to remember. Some of us are so worried that when we're asked a question, we won't know what the answer is. Listen, you know the answer. What you're really worried about 
is that you won't be able to say it in a way that makes it sound less controversial than it actually is. Jesus shows us here, just give an honest, straight answer, even if the question is loaded. Now, before you volcanoes out there all start thinking that I'm simply telling you to keep doing what you're doing, well, remember, an honest answer is different to a knockout blow. 1 Peter 3 uh, calls us to answer with gentleness and respect. That's what we see with Jesus here. No, no zingers, no killer one-liners that crush his opponents and make them slink off in disgrace. He just gives them the answer plainly and honestly. That's the second thing we can learn here today. Thirdly, we also see, as we, as we have this conflict around Jesus' identity, we must let the Bible speak. We must let the Bible speak. In verse 25, Jesus, Jesus answered uh, the Pharisees, have you never read? You know, the answer to that question for most people today is no, they haven't read. I remember when I uh, worked in a recruitment company and I was the only Christian in the office and everyone knew I was a Christian. And so every so often someone would throw a random Christian question to me. And uh, it was pancake day, uh, just as it was earlier this week. Uh, by the way, pancake day, potentially the best holiday of the year. Uh, the, the, uh, the Evans household uh, went big this, this, this year. We went, uh, went full American, bacon and maple syrup. I, I feel like that's the the only way really to do Pancake Day. Absolutely fantastic. But anyway, I was working in this recruitment company uh, a few years back and someone shouted across the office. They said, hey, Pete, what, what's Pancake Day all about? And before I was able to answer, the girl sat next to me and went, oh, oh wait, I know this one. She said, uh, it's when Jesus' disciples went to the cupboard and there was nothing left apart from pancakes. And so that's what they ate. And I looked at her and then I looked at everyone else and everyone else just went, Ah, okay, good, good. By the way, if you, if you don't know, that's not the answer. That's not what happened, not even close. When answering questions, when you find yourself in conflict, let the Bible speak because people have not read it. People don't know this word, but you hold in your hand the sword of the Spirit of God. It has the power to awaken spiritually dead people, open spiritually blind eyes. In this book, God speaks. So use it. If you struggle for the words, use these words. The confidence of Jesus himself is in the Bible. Have you never read, he says. So our best course of action is also to get it open as soon as we can with people. That's our third point. Fourthly, do good in full view. Do good in full view. As we've already said, conflict does strange things to us. It makes us hide away or it makes us horrible. And then we either end up doing good when no one can see it or we act awfully as loudly as possible and do great damage to our Christian witness. No one ever became a Christian because you hammered them in a debate in the YouTube comments section. Well, in the synagogue, as we've already noted, Jesus knows that he is walking into a trap. He knows that they're watching him. So what does he do? Verse 3. 
He said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. You see, people need to be given the chance to see the goodness of the gospel at work in our lives, in our community, in our homes, in our work, in our relationships, and in our giving and in our caring for the sick and the broken and the poor. Most people today think that being a Christian, following Jesus, leads you into a life of bigotry and repression and misery. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. We, we have to loudly declare to the world. We have to show people that it doesn't. The invitation to follow Christ is the invitation to stretch out a withered hand. The invitation to come and find life and joy and hope and beauty and restoration once again. But if we never let people see that, how are they to know? How are they to come and find it too? Do good in full view of all. And finally today, Jesus teaches us that we must trust God for the consequences. Maybe you've been thinking the whole time, Pete, this is great, but let's be honest, it didn't exactly work out well for Jesus, did it? For there in verse 6 of chapter 3 we read, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. He dies. He dies. That is how this conflict ends. Well, what if it goes that way for us too? What if we end up feeling the sting of rejection? What if we lose that relationship that is so important to us? What if we lose that job? Or we damage our reputation? What if it impacts our kids? What if we're mocked? What if we're defamed or denounced? What if... And it's unlikely, but we'll go there because this is the situation facing many of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world. What if we die? You know, here's the thing. We should expect pain as a result of, of this conflict. It happened to Jesus and we are following him. After all, we should expect it. And in, in order to follow him... We need to embrace it. We should expect pain as a result of this conflict. But we must do so remembering the paradox of the Christian life. That through death, God brings life. Conflict didn't end for Jesus in death. Through his death, he redeemed us. He paid for our sins. And today, he lives again, never to die, sharing his eternal life with all those who come to him. Jesus calls us into a new conflict as his followers, which will inevitably result in us getting hurt in one way or another. Conflict always does. But the God we worship brings life from death, joy from sorrow, redemption 
from repression. He'll do it in our lives. He'll do it in the lives of those that we love. He'll do it in the lives of those who oppose us. History shows that when Christians follow Jesus into this conflict about his identity, we experience pain, but we also discover life. The fruit of God's life, drawing more and more people to himself. So, answer the deeper question. Answer loaded questions honestly. Let the Bible speak. Do good in full view and trust God for the consequences. You know, I've got one final thought for you to close. We can't do this. We can't, we can't do this. Great way to end, by the way, Pete. Yeah, right? We can't do this. This is all great, but it's basically impossible. Why do I say that? Well, because I know me. And I know many of you. We are weak. We're cowards. We care too much about our own reputations. We make mistakes. We, we stumble. We fall. Which is why we need Jesus today. Because this is who he is. This is what he is like. He doesn't call us to do something that he himself has not done. He asks us to follow in his footsteps. And more than that, he lives in us by his spirit. There is power today for us to live in this way. Resurrection life, making you new, giving you courage, giving you faith. So... Embrace your inability, so long as it turns you away from dependence upon yourself. And ask the Spirit of God to make you strong in the service of Christ. As we are drawn into conflict over the identity of Jesus. When we pray these things, the Spirit will not fail us. So let's pray together now. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you have given us eyes to see. You have awakened us from spiritual death. We are able to appreciate the glory of your identity. You are indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, who came into the world to save and rescue sinners like us. We thank you for the hope that we have, that one day everything that is wrong will be fixed and we will live with you forever. And Lord, we confess our sins. We recognize that often we fail to engage in this conflict regarding your identity. We, or we just do it poorly. We either we hide away or we misrepresent you. We behave badly. We speak without grace and gentleness. And Lord, we hear your call today to follow you and to experience this conflict that will inevitably bring pain into our lives. And we're scared, Lord Jesus. We are scared. But we thank you that you are with us, that you are helping us by your Spirit. And the power of your Spirit is far greater than the weakness of ours. 
And so we pray, please come and do your work. Help us, empower us, help us to serve you in this way that we might experience the life that flows from death, that we might know the goodness of serving you in this way. And we might see many people come to experience that new life themselves. Lord, we pray that you would answer our prayers. Father, in Jesus' name, amen.